But I think it's important that we recognize that fasting can be a really instrumental strategy for metabolic health, balancing hormones, changing body composition, losing weight, as well as a slew of other health benefits. And so I think it's really important that we start the narrative there, really talking about eating less often. That's really what you and I focus on is, is encouraging people to consider the possibility that they don't need to have three meals a day and snacks. And it's actually that kind of outdated dogma that is plaguing us. Thousands and thousands of patients that I've worked with and other healthcare providers where we've seen just incredible, incredible strides in improvement in, in health markers just by eating less often. This is Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast, and I am your host, Bet Lucas. I am a mom of six crazy kids. I work as a VP in a fast-paced industry, and I've been on a health journey. But what does living your big, bold life even mean? Living boldly is having the courage to finally listen and do what your heart has been trying to tell you all along. Maybe it's to take back your health, write the book, go for the job, run the race. And I'm here to help you listen to that voice and to remind you to be you boldly. The world needs you. Cynthia, I don't know how I was so blessed to now have you on the show twice on Big Bold Life Podcast. Such an honor to have you back. Thank you. No, you're very welcome. I've been looking forward to our conversation. You know, Cynthia, it's amazing. Someone with your experience in the fasting realm, it's so exciting to see you come out with a a new book. And today we're going to tackle some of the topics that you're sharing with the world. And I know some of my listeners know you very well. And some of my listeners may not know you at all. But I would love it if you could just share a little bit about who you are, what your passions are, and why you're here today. Well, thank you uh, for that warm introduction. So I'm a traditionally trained nurse practitioner. I have functional training in nutrition, and I'm super passionate about encouraging women to really live their best lives. I'm a middle-aged woman, and I just don't believe or embrace these limiting beliefs as they pertain to how we age, whether we gain weight or not, or how we balance our hormones. And a lot of what I'm known for is uh, probably two TED Talks that I've done, one on perimenopause and one on intermittent fasting for women. And so I really feel super aligned with the fact that this is a strategy that women can do throughout their lifetime with some exceptions. And I think it's really important for us to start the conversation about how women need to fast differently to honor our physiology and not to apologize for it. I think we as women on so many levels feel like we have to apologize for our uniqueness our menstrual cycles, whatever differences that make us you know, unique, we sometimes feel like we have to apologize for. And I would be the first person to say that I think it's future and subsequent generations. I hope that we've moved the needle enough that they don't feel like that's something that they have to continuously do. Like I have felt throughout my, you know, kind of health and wellness journey, as well as my career. You know, it's interesting. You know, I just turned 40 last year. I'll turn 41 this year. I, I need to change that because it's 2022 now. I am very passionate about the topic of fasting and I feel it's a very powerful tool in our in our health and wellness tool belt. What do you tell somebody out there who doesn't know much about fasting but kind of is has read an article or has seen something and they're like, hey, I've I've heard fasting is bad for women. I've heard fasting is going to affect my hormones negatively. I'm sure you get those questions a lot. How do you address them and what do you say? Well, I think bioindividuality rules. So each one of us are unique and we really have to be honest with ourselves about how our brains and our bodies take in information around us. And by that, I mean how we manage stress. What's our sleep like? Do we overexercise? Are we eating anti-inflammatory nutrition? Are we still getting our menstrual cycle? Because we need to fast differently if we're still getting a menstrual cycle versus being in perimenopause, the five to 10 years preceding menopause or in menopause where we've had 12 months without a menstrual cycle. And so when people fear monger about fasting, I actually find it to be tremendously unhelpful. And I speak as a clinician, we're in a public health crisis right now. We have 
a population that nearly 90% of us are metabolically unhealthy. And if there is a strategy that can help men and women get their health back and do it without a lot of gimmicks, I think it's critically important that we entertain the possibility that along with other lifestyle medicine uh, changes, that this is an integral part of helping us as a nation to gain back our health. I mean, that's one of the the issues over the past years that's been so frustrating for me is that no one's really focusing in on metabolic health or, or disease. Instead, we're focused on other factors, which I won't won't touch with a 10-foot pole on a podcast. Right. But I think it's important that we recognize that fasting can be a really instrumental strategy for metabolic health, balancing hormones, you know, changing body composition, losing weight, as well as a slew of other health benefits. And so I think it's really important that we start the narrative there, really talking about eating less often. That's really what you and I focus on is, is encouraging people to consider the possibility that they don't need to have three meals a day and snacks. And it's actually that kind of outdated dogma that is plaguing us. There's so much cognitive dissonance that people are not willing to understand that you actually will be healthier by eating less often, making better food choices, actually giving your body the fuel that it needs and allowing your body to have time to digest food and allow your hormones to be in better alignment. And like I said, there's obviously distinctions or obviously times in a woman's life when she should not be fasting. And we can certainly touch on that. But I think to make blanket statements, and there are people out there, there are professionals out there that are doing that, not just the fit pro industry or health coaches, the people who I have to believe are well-meaning, but are confusing and confounding the science and confusing and confounding thousands and thousands of patients that I've worked with and other healthcare providers where we've seen just incredible, incredible strides in improvement in in health markers just by eating less often. And Cynthia, do you find it fascinating? I sure do that, you know, for years, our ancestors and even our grandparents were quote unquote fasting. And Mm -hmm. slowly through time, we've been pushed to eat more and more, and we have access to more addictive foods and more inflammatory foods. And it's so interesting that, you know, most of my teenage years, even in my 20s, I was told to keep my metabolism going. Mm -hmm. I needed to eat something, you know, eat anything. Because, and that's why you needed to eat breakfast. And that's why you needed a mid-morning snack. And it's so interesting to watch because it's like we're just inundated. We're never, never taking a break from food. And then we're saying, why are we unhealthy? What's wrong? I don't, I don't get it. And to me, it's like, well, just look at our grandparents. I mean, you don't actually have to go back that far they were not eating all of the time. They were taking breaks from food. They may not have called it fasting. And look at the health of even a few generations ago versus our health today. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I did a podcast with Vinny Tortorich uh, a few months ago, and we were talking about his latest documentary. And I had an opportunity to see it before it went public. And, and he had a photo of Woodstock from like 1969 versus a Woodstock photo from 1999. And you would never have believed that there was only a 30-year span between these photos. People in 1969 were thin. People in 1999 were not. And I really think if we look, if we follow the paper trail, we follow the money trail, we recognize that there's a slew of things that happened, you know, the bastardization of fats, um, this proliferation of subsidized crops that are proliferative in the processed food industry, this hyper-palatable, highly processed foods that most of us are consuming, the bastardization of fats, the changes to my plate, and certainly the USDA uh, food guide pyramid have really pushed a lot of these subsidized crops and certainly pushed a lot of processed carbohydrates and telling people it's heart healthy grains. And I put that in air quotes. And I think it's, you're right that, you know, my grandparents, your grandparents, my grandparents had a beautiful garden. They made everything from scratch. And we've gotten so far away from knowing how to cook meals and feeling comfortable doing that. We've been convinced by the processed food industry that their hyper palatable bags and boxes of crap are somehow going to make our lives easier. And I would argue that between the inflammatory seed oils, between, you know, high fructose corn syrup and a a slew of other, you know, sometimes unpronounceable ingredients 
we've tricked our bodies into thinking this is nutrition. And so one example that I, I like to talk about is the fact that when you see someone that's obese or overweight, they're really nutrient deprived. Their body can't actually access any food fuel. Their body is storing a lot of this, this food consumption as fat and fat is this highly sophisticated organ. You know, fat is an organ. It is not just fat. And I remind people all the inflammation and oxidative stress doesn't do our bodies any difference. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that the lack of digestive rest is creating a whole cascade of, of health and metabolic health issues. And I remind people that our bodies are really designed to have four to five hours between meals. Um, when we properly put our meals together, when we're eating you know, high quality protein and non-starchy vegetables and high quality healthy fats, which are not seed oils, uh, our body knows what to do with that fuel, but that's not what most of us are eating. In fact, I, I have teenagers, one of whom likes to eat breakfast, one of whom does not. And we're constantly talking about that. that's why I don't buy cereal uh, because I said it's dessert. If, if we're going to treat it as such, let's call it what it is and it's dessert. And if I'm going to buy cereal, I'd rather buy you dark chocolate, which at least has some health benefits. But I, I think that it all starts with food and, and it all starts with food frequency. And, and we have been conditioned. And I certainly, when I started as a newbie nurse practitioner, gosh, the stuff I used to tell my patients, I always say, know better, do better. I didn't know better in 2001 when I started as a nurse practitioner, but I sure as heck know better now. And, and I think the growing awareness, there's certainly more and more clinicians that are that are speaking to their patients differently about food, but it's really going to take an army of people, not just clinicians, but also healthcare providers and podcasts like yours that help educate people to make better decisions and to consider that perhaps they don't know at all that, you know, we have to be intellectually curious. We have to continue learning. I tell my kids all the time, I will be a lifelong learner till I die. And so I'm always looking at different perspectives, trying to see how could I serve others on another level by being able to share information that would be a benefit to them. A light bulb really went off for me on my health journey. You know, I was at the time trying all the things I was working out. I was what I would define eating pretty healthy. Mm -hmm. And I just came across this thought of elongating the time between meals. And I heard a podcast and Kelly Levesque was on there and mm -hmm. she was sharing about how elongating the time between meals is beneficial. It's anti-inflammatory. And here I had tried all the things, but no one had ever suggested to just take a break between meals and actually elongate it. In fact, when I would say, gosh, I'm kind of stuck. I don't know what's wrong. I, I kind of feel like I'm like 30 pounds heavier than I need to be. Everyone would say, oh, well, maybe you need to add a snack here or, or do this. <laughs> and it was like, and I remember finally trying it, like finally trying the taking a break and trying to stretch that time. And it was amazing. This whole new world opened up. And that was kind of my first step towards fasting. But no one was talking about this. Like no one was telling me that that was maybe my problem was the opposite of what I had been doing. Yeah. And I think it's important, you know, I think it's important for your listeners to know that I used to be that person who would go to the gym and I drink a protein shake and I drank a protein shake when I was going to the hospital. And then I had snacks and mini, I don't know how I manage this seeing patients, but somehow I'd have, you know, a portion snacks and I'd have something I'd eat when I got to the hospital. I'd have like eggs that I could eat. I mean, I don't know how I did it, but how much less complicated your life becomes when you recognize you actually don't need to eat that frequently. Like to me, it's a blessing if I get up in the morning and I know I can get my kids to school. My husband gets squared away. The dogs get walked. I can start my work day or do my workout. And I don't have to worry about food. And I, I probably break my fast and I end my, my feeding window probably earlier than a lot of other people. I do best with like a 10 or 11 a.m. breaking my fast. And then I end my, my feeding window around four or five o'clock. But for me, the knowing that I'm, I'm going to have two meals a day and I don't have to worry about packing snacks or taking things with me. I always say, as long as I'm hydrated, I'm good. I can do just about anything. But I think it's that awareness. Like once you get to a point where you realize it isn't quite so strange, to consider that you don't need to eat breakfast and you don't have to eat so frequently, I think that's really important. And I think it's also empowering because you recognize all those snack products, like going through the airport, my family and I went away for Christmas and my kids were just stunned because we they ha we haven't traveled as much as we normally do. Yep. We're in an airport and I was like, it's just a bunch of crap and junk. You know, it's 
really, and really, if you like eat breakfast, you really don't need to eat again until lunch and you really shouldn't need to eat again before dinner, but it's all these tantalizing, brightly packaged colors that are trying to, you know, encourage us to eat them. And, and I always say to my kids that I recognize now they're teenagers. So there's, there's a little bit of whatever I say, sometimes they ignore me, which is fine. Right. That's part of the opposite like, mob. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's part of that whole process of becoming their own autonomous individuals. But I think it all, they also appreciate so much more now that because they've always learned how to fuel their bodies, they don't deal with energy dips. They don't deal with getting hangry. They're very athletic. They're both uh, very successful athletic young men and do really well in school. And I remind them all the time, like part of that is that they've always eaten really well. Like I have one that's carnivore-ish. I have one that's a little more high carb. He's a competitive swimmer. And so we just kind of, you know, set the expectations. Where's your protein? That's always what I'm always saying to the one who eats more carbs. Where's your protein? Make sure you get your protein in. I know you swim, so you need more rice. I get it. But really honoring their own physiology, which is the same thing I would recommend to your listeners that you know, each one of us might need a little bit different. I certainly am the lowest carb in my house. I'm also the only female. I'm also middle-aged. So I'm just at a different life and stage. And so I think we just really lean into like, how active were you that day? Did you lift? Uh, You know, are you really hungry? Do you really need the carbohydrate? I always like to suggest to people that if they're going to have their carbs, have them earlier in the day. We know we become progressively more insulin resistant as the day goes on. So if you do tolerate grains, as an example, have them with your lunch. Don't have them at dinner at eight o'clock at night and then wonder why your continuous glucose monitor is a hot mess uh, before you go to bed. So I think it's it's helpful for people to really do some experimentation. And I love that you do that yourself. I have certainly tried a lot of things to find what works best for my body. And I tell people all the time, like what works well for me that may not work well for you, may not work for my husband or your husband or someone else that's listening. And so the N of one is really powerful and the N of one is you. And so, you know, from there you can really, you know, garner some incredibly valuable information. I love that you always talk about adapting to you, adapting to your journey, because I'm sure you get asked all the time, like, Cynthia, what do you eat? And you you just gave kind of a picture and and I get asked, Oh, Bet, what are you what are you eating today? How long are you fasting today? But for me, Cynthia, what I found is I'm always kind of trying to try new things. And I talk about that a lot with fasting too, that you've got to find the fasting shoe that fits you best. And what I wear today at 40, almost 41 years old may look different than my fasting shoe at 50 or at 60, or if I was a male or if I was a teenager and, you know, 19, what would my eating and fasting look like? And I really love that you talk about adapting. And it's interesting because when I feel my best is when I have the window that you that you do most days. It's kind of that 10 to 4 to 5, somewhere in there. I tend to break mine a little bit earlier than most people like you. And then I tend to want to stop earlier. But sometimes with life, it doesn't always work that way, right? Like I find that that would be my perfect, but I sometimes have to adjust to our family because we have so many young children running around. Yes. And and so you're at a different life stage. Like for me, the one thing that the pandemic taught me was I don't feel good eating at six or seven o'clock at night, which makes me probably sound like a weirdo. But if you look at chronobiology, if you look at how we have these, we have these melatonin clocks, we have these circadian clocks in the body, it explains why most people don't do well if they eat within three hours of bedtime. And so for me, I tend to go to bed a little earlier. So you're learning... Your listeners are learning a lot about my schedule, but the pandemic's blessing was that it made me realize that I really do need to lean into what works best for me. So there are some nights where I have eaten before my family, but I sit with everyone or I help create a meal. And because they're teenagers, they understand. So it's a different life stage. So I can completely appreciate why you have to figure out like where you are. But that has been one of the lessons that I learned over the past two years. And you know, for me, it's it's funny, I wear an aura ring. And so the aura ring corroborates all of this. Like I actually showed my engineer finance husband one day when he was doubtful that I could actually capture this information. And I said, look, my heart rate, everything, my blood sugar, everything is impacted when I eat later in the day. And I said, it's just easier for me to end my, you know, I'd rather have a big lunch, a small dinner, and then I'm done. And that actually works really well. And a big dinner or a big lunch is indeed a big, a very big lunch. But with that being said, really honoring where we are in time and space, 
10 years ago, it would have been a lot harder. My kids would have been six and four. Now they're 14 and 16, different time frame. Now they go to bed after I do, which is probably a little embarrassing to admit, but they're teenagers, you know, they're night owls. They like to stay up later. That will be me. So they'll be yeah. like, I, I can't. I, yeah. I gotta go no, no. <laughs> yeah. Last night I hit a wall at like 9, 15. I was like, I have to go to bed. I was like, the dogs have gone out. You've both eaten. You're done with sports. I'm going to bed. And so it's become like an ongoing joke that I'm the first one to bed and the first one up. But that's just my role. You know, I'm, I'm very much the lion. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Bruce's chronotypes. And so I'm definitely a lion up early, energy in the morning, energy in the afternoon. And then by nine o'clock at night, my body's like, we're done. <laughs> we're totally done. I think we could be twins in this department. I always joke that I'm not a morning person. I'm not a night person. I'm a day person, but I am definitely more of a morning person than I am a night person. And I just, I go really hard like you all day. Mm -hmm. And then I literally, it's like, okay, I'm done. I need to go to bed. And if you guys aren't all going to bed, too bad. You are. (laughs) I'm going without you. Um, Well, I love that. And I do like that you provide encouragement that you can eat dinner with your family and fast. Like you can sit with them. I should say not eat, but uh, you can sit with them because there was actually quite a few years where I was even an earlier window and I would often skip dinner and I had fabulous results in that. Mm -hmm. And my window would close kind of around, it's like two-ish. And I had fabulous results and people ask me all the time, well, how could you do that? And, oh my gosh, your girls are watching. And, you know, it's interesting. They never would say my son, but they'd say your girls are watching. And and I'd say, you know, it's interesting. I actually thought it was really positive and it was an opportunity to have talks around food and healthy eating and loving our bodies and listening to our bodies. And it's not about, as you and I know, fasting is not about starvation. If you probably saw what Cynthia had for lunch or what I have for lunch, it's a lot of food. It's actually the exact opposite of starvation and a diet mindset. It's really feasting well but fasting well too. Yeah. And I think it's important that we reframe the conversation for our children. Like I have boys and it's interesting. I get asked all the time, can, can teenagers or young adults fast? And I always say, yeah, if they're still growing, it's probably not the best idea. But what's interesting is my 14 year old, who's very strong headed. He's a competitive swimmer. He swims five or six nights a week, very hard. He doesn't want to eat breakfast in the morning and I don't, I don't force him, but he comes home and has a massive lunch He has a massive dinner and I was saying he does have a compressed feeding window, but he gets through school and this is his choice. I mean, we've kind of have let him roll with it because, you know, he got to a point where he said, I think what you'd understand is I'm still getting my food in. I'm just eating in a compressed window. Whereas my 16 year old uh, has to eat breakfast. Like he gets up in the morning. That's the first thing he thinks about. He's like food. (laughs) So he's still growing as is my 14 year old. But I think part of teaching our children about eating healthfully is also saying like lean into when you feel hunger and understand how to fuel your body, but don't feel pressure because how many moms sit down and eat when they're not hungry? And I think that's an even more damaging example to set. If you feel pressured to eat, even though you're not hungry, and I'll tell my kids, like I'll sit down with water or whatever it is that I'm drinking at the time. But I remind them, I'm like, this is not an issue of, of, you know, not giving my body the nourishment it needs. It's respecting the fact that my body does best by eating earlier. My 14 year old came home and ate his massive lunch and I was eating my massive lunch. Um, just, they happened to overlap this afternoon and we were talking about it openly. And he said, I think it's great mom that you just do what works for you. It doesn't bother my older son. He doesn't bother us that that's how you choose to eat. And I said, well, it bothers other people. It's interesting how our habits can be triggering in others, but I, and I refuse to take ownership for that. And I'm sure you're probably the same way. I'm like, that's not my, my issue. I'm not going to take ownership for that. I'm not going to, to, you know, although I'm happy to explain, I am not going to then have to feel as if my choice is not honoring where I am in time and space. I acknowledge that perhaps for you, that may be triggering, but that's, I, I don't take ownership of that feeling. Yeah. I think that's so important. And you know, if I look back when I was struggling the most on my health journey and I took all the food and the snacks that I ate mm-hmm. all day and actually condensed them down into two kind of main meals, 
it would have been a lot of food. It would have been. However, what I think fasting does so well is that it does slowly retrain you to eat more real meals instead of kind of, even if they were kind of healthy snacks, it was like, like you said, it's like, oh, we're going to have our nuts and we're going to have our string cheese and we're going to have this. But we we were still eating a lot. The difference is now, I think, and what I want to tell anyone there who's thought about fasting is still eating that every two to three hours a day that you've probably lost somewhere this this meal. You've probably mm-hmm. lost that. You're just kind of grazing mm-hmm. all day. And I have never been so satisfied on my eating journey until I started fasting. And I, I tell people that all the time. And I know they probably think I'm crazy, but it's really, really true. Yeah. Well, I, I can just remember, I mean, this is a long time ago, but when I was breastfeeding my first son, and I breastfed him for a year. And at the time I'd have, I worked for a very demanding cardiology practice as a nurse practitioner. I was just solely hospital-based, so very long days. And my option was to either pump during the day or eat. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I would pump and eat a protein bar. And back then protein bars were like terrible. And I remember I would go through like three protein bars. Every time I pumped, I would have a protein bar. So you can imagine I lost my, my pregnancy weight very quickly and not in a healthy way. I actually got too thin. But I think about why did I crave sugar and carbs so much? And I I realize it's because I never gave my body the nourishing food it needed. I ate healthy on the days I didn't work, but on the days I did work and I only worked part-time, my body, especially with breastfeeding, was starving all day long. And so I acknowledge and I say to people all the time, like when you have those powerful cravings, your body is communicating to you, either you're not getting the right foods you're getting your macros mixed up. And by that, I mean, I'm very pro-animal-based protein, healthy fats, non-starchy carbs. I think that's really the way most women need to be eating. Sorry if that's triggering, but that's you know that's based on a lot of, of many years of working with women. And, and what ends up happening is we're doing the opposite. We're eating a lot of carbs, a lot of processed carbs, not as much protein as we need, certainly not the right types of healthy fats. And we're never really nourished. And so we're wondering why, like I used to make, this is kind of embarrassing to admit, but when I was breastfeeding, I could eat like a linebacker. And I can remember I would make protein cookies, like they would be homemade, but like I would eat a lot of, you know, like fat bomb, what was now considered to be a fat bomb back then. I don't know what we called it, but energy bars that I would make or cookies. And I was saying to my husband, my body was so desperately looking for more macros and certainly the right ones. And it took me a bit of time to figure this out. So I always feel like being fully transparent, I'll say I did plenty of the wrong things before I started doing the right things. But when I finally started nourishing my body, I didn't have cravings anymore. And I think cravings are can be cyclical, like they could be around your menstrual cycle, but also cravings can be a sign there's an imbalance or there's a need that's not being met. And so I always say cravings are a good check-in with our body. Like I know that my adrenals and I'm, and I'm having a lot of stress when I start craving salt. And so you can imagine with a book launch, there's a lot of stress. And so I was saying to my husband, I've gotten very savvy about getting the right amount of sodium and other electrolytes into my diet. Like it's like taking electrolytes to another level, but acknowledging this is what my body needs right now. And I really lean into it. I always say like, I don't worry about the salt craving. It just is a reminder that I need to take care of me. And so it's also like super important that I'm leaning into that and not pretending that it's not, that it's not actually manifesting itself. I love when your body is telling you (laughs) that actually, and you know it and you can Mm -hmm. listen to it. I, I definitely find that on a longer fast or when I'm opening a fast, I at times really need red meat. And I really Mm -hmm. feel it's like, oh, I need some iron and I need some other things. It's really interesting. And the other night it was like, my body wanted red meat and some mushrooms. Like it's really cool when you can kind of know. And I find when I listen to it like that, you're right. Then the cravings aren't there. And I wasn't doing that either for so long. It was, I was really struggling to hear what my body was trying to tell me because I think when you're just giving it constant noise in the form of snacking, you can't hear things. Your body is having a hard time communicating with you. And just like we need a break from noise of the world, I think that we need a break from the noise of food in our life and that break. I would agree. I totally agree. And I'm, right now I'm going through a cycle where I want lean meat, not not fattier meat or fattier fish. 
And so my son was laughing. I like had hard boiled eggs. I had some like very lean bacon. I had some, you know, some roasted turkey. It was like a, a mini cob salad. I was just trying to make use of greens that needed to be eaten. And it was the most satiating lunch because it was exactly what I needed. And I was trying to explain to him that, you know, I've gotten so attuned. I can tell when my body wants more fat, less fat. And so less fat means I might increase my non-starchy carbohydrates and if I want more fat, then I dial down on the carbs. And so protein is the consistent piece. Protein helps with those satiety signals, which again, for women, we don't eat enough protein. This is something that I feel like has become, you know, really a huge issue for a lot of women as they under eat protein. And you mentioned turning 40 and something that I think is important for women to really be aware of is that it's not a question of if, but when, when we develop sarcopenia, this muscle loss of aging um, we heat, we really hit peak bone and muscle mass in our twenties and thirties. So when you hit 40, you are starting to lose muscle mass and muscle is the organ of longevity. It is a glucose reservoir. It is critically important for metabolic flexibility. And so I tell women, if you can do it, you want to make sure that you are building lean muscle throughout your lifetime to ensure that you remain as metabolically healthy as possible. Cause it's harder where I am. I had a big birthday last year too. And it's harder at 50 than it was at 40 as than it was at 30 to maintain that muscle mass. It's a whole lot more challenging. And that has a lot to do with some of the hormonal fluctuations, especially with sex hormones. It's not insurmountable, but it's definitely something that you have to be very diligent about. I love that you share about this message because <laughs> I just am so passionate that protein is the difference maker mm-hmm. and it is the building block for so many things. And I can't, I can't tell you how many people that once they just dial up their protein a little bit, how much more energy they have, they sleep better, they feel better, they are more satiated. I mean, I think the the benefit list is so long. And I just don't know if there's many clinicians out there that realize what a difference maker that could be for their population that they're seeing that is struggling. Well, and I, I don't think we're talking enough about it. I mean, I certainly have learned a ton through a good friend, um, physician, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. And if you don't follow her, if any of the listeners don't follow her, you should. She's amazing. She's, she has a book that'll be coming out, I think, in 2023. So she's just a pr- phenomenal human being and is really doing a lot to spread the message of muscle-centric medicine. But the more I learn from her, the more I realize like we are telling our patients all the wrong information. I say we as a collectively are not sharing enough about nutrition. We're certainly not sharing enough about maintaining muscle mass. And I think about the patients of mine that weren't even all that older than I am that could barely you know, get off the commode or get off the toilet in the hospital. And it is not healthy or normal to become so weak that you can't do what we call activities of daily living, being able to get out of bed, being able to get on and off the toilet. I mean, they're really poor prognostic indicators, meaning that you know, it puts you at risk for falls. It puts you at risk for developing insulin resistance. And so it really becomes hugely problematic. And so I I wish more clinicians were talking about this. Um, I love that you have a platform that you can help educate people talking about the unique uh, needs of, of consuming protein and adequate muscle protein synthesis and amino acid intake, et cetera. It's a really vitally important message for people to, to be thinking about it way before they get to be middle-aged, really thinking about it in their 20s and 30s. I mean, I look at my 16-year-old who is building tons of lean muscle and really encouraging him to understand like how much protein he needs a day. And so I said, you know, one pound per gram of ideal body weight. And so really important for people to understand like he's 145 pounds, he's skinny, he's six feet tall, um, but he's very lean. And I said, if you want to be 160 pounds, you really need to be hitting 160 grams of protein a day. And so helping him structure his meals and also working with my patients and clients, same thing saying, if you're not eating more than 50 grams a day, slowly start increasing it, like go to 60, go to 70 grams a day and really ratchet up aiming for hundred grams. And do I make that every single day? Sometimes no. Do I aim for it? Absolutely. Without question, because I recognize the important and the currency of metabolic health is too important not to try to get there every day. Hey friends, it's Beth. If you are enjoying today's podcast, I really hope you will join me every week for what I hope you find are inspiring interviews and bold content on topics like family and career and health. And can I also ask you a favor? 
Can you press that subscribe button and write a review if you like what you hear today? By doing those things, you are helping me get the word out. And I truly would be ever, ever so grateful. It also allows you to be the first to know when new content arrives. So please subscribe today. Now let's get back to our guests. So it's interesting, you know, years ago, if you would have asked me, Bet, so what has higher nutrient density, this piece of steak right here, or this vegetable? I would have nine times out of 10 told you, or 10 times out of 10, I would have said, of course, the vegetable, Mm -hmm. and or of course, the fruit. I mean, I'd probably put a lot of foods in front of that. And to me... It's interesting to look back and as I've learned so much on my health journey and I still have so much more to learn. Oh my gosh, I'm here and here, but I had no idea meat was super nutrient dense. It's in, I don't think a lot of the world knows that. I don't think they know there's vitamins in meat. Do you? Right. (laughs) Well, and I I think, I think there, there's been several things that have happened. We've, we've put so much vilification on healthy fats we have pushed the agenda about plant-based being superior to animal-based protein, which it's not. And I think on top of that, there's been so much confusion about, you know, these subsidized crops, you know, looking at corn, looking at sugar beets, looking at soy, and which direction does that lean? It doesn't lean pro-protein. That's really generally leaning towards yeah. carbohydrate-focused. And I would argue that those are the types of foods that are making us sicker and fatter. And so I, I think that it's really going to take an army of people to help turn the tide. And, and it, it's interesting to me that when I eat a meat focused or meat centric or seafood centric diet, um, those satiety hormones in my brain are, are completely, they tell my stomach, you are full, you are done. The brain to stomach communication is fantastic. I can't eat another thing. Whereas if I were to sit down and I've been gluten-free for 10 years if I were to sit down and eat a bowl of pasta, it would be never ending. I would never feel full. Yes. And so really recognizing that the, the foods that we choose to consume send very important messages to our endocrine system, to our brain, uh, to our bodies. You know, they, the joke used to be, it takes 20 minutes for your, your brain to realize your stomach is full. And I'm like, well, I can tell you if I eat a steak, I don't need 20 minutes for my, for my brain to tell my, st- or my stomach to tell my brain it's full because you will hit those stretch receptors in the stomach. It will tell you, I am satiated. I don't need more food. I am completely full. Please send no more food down the gullet. And so I I think it's important for people to recognize that there's a bit of experimentation. You may find you do better with poultry. You may do better with red meat. Um, I encourage people to, you know, I always say monogamy is good in a relationship. Monogamy with food, eating the same foods every day is not a good thing. Our bodies need different types of nutrients, experiment with different types of protein, experiment with what's in season, aim to eating more organic because you're going to get less pesticide exposure, herbicide exposure, which is a whole separate tangential conversation. But we know those things, those insecticides and herbicides wreak havoc on the gut microbiome, punch holes in our small intestine, contribute to leaky gut. Again, I know I'm getting off on a tangent, but really, you know, buying the best quality food that your budget permits. And that, that leaves people with a lot of decisions to make. We don't eat out very often, uh, largely because I can track what happens to my glucometer um, or my continuous glucose monitor when I eat out. Even if I'm eating protein and vegetables, it's because things get cooked in inferior oils. They're exposed to junk and crap and who knows what else. And so for me, it's easier to stay at home. My husband and I are better cooks than most of the restaurants we go to. But I think it's all, we all make decisions. Like we enjoy going out to eat, but I recognize I have to kind of disconnect my brain. Otherwise, I think I think through those things so carefully that then I, I forget that I'm there to enjoy the experience and not worry as much about what I'm eating and what quality of meat I'm eating, et cetera. No, that makes complete sense. So you have your new book coming out. Super excited. It's available for pre-order now. Tell us about your new book and what we can expect. And I really love that a big component of your book is kind of a 45-day challenge. And so I'd love to hear more about that too, because I think so many of us need retrained that we can't turn our health around in a five-day juice cleanse, you know? So super excited to hear about your book, Cynthia. Yeah. So out of the viral TED Talk, even though I'd been 
talking to patients and clients about intermittent fasting for a long time, we, we, my team and I kind of scrambled to put together programs to meet the needs of people that were coming to us as uh, wanting training or wanting education about fasting. And so we tried a lot of different variations, 30 days, 60 days, 45 days was the sweet spot. 45 days appeared to be like the magic number for people to learn a new skill, be able to apply it, learn a lot about it. And so the book is really taking the very best of what I know about fasting, you know, a bit about the research, the impact on women's hormones, and it's really focused on women, but it doesn't mean it's not a book for men too, because all men know women in their lives that could benefit from the strategy, talking about the science behind it, the hormones behind it, what makes us unique. And I always say, let's embrace our physiology instead of apologizing for it, whether you are a cycling woman a woman in perimenopause or menopause, there are strategies to help you succeed with fasting. As far as I know, there is no other book that's out there that's having these conversations, talking about this subject the way that I am. And it's also using a program that I've used with thousands of women very successfully. And I love that there are challenges in there. There are over 50 recipes um, by one of my favorite chefs, Beth Lipton, that are designed to be, you know, very nutrient dense, but easy and flavorful. There are also uh, all sorts of like tips and tricks, best practices, like Beth and I were talking about clean fasting versus dirty fasting. And I always say, I want my ladies to understand how to do fasting you know, really, I always, I used to call it the ivory tower when I was an undergrad, but really learning best practices so that if you get off track in the future, you know what works and you can go back to. And so I'm really proud of the work. It's uh, exciting that it's almost here. There's lots of pre-sale bonuses. We have, when I say detox, a healthy detox program called clean and 14 is one of the pre-sale bonuses. We have bonus recipes and we actually have a masterclass that I'm going to be teaching prior to publication date that will only be available for people that have pre-ordered the book. So I'm really, really excited about it. Oh, I just think it's great. We talked about the energy of fasting and all the many of the other benefits, but in the book, tell us a few things that you have found are other benefits. And you even talked about one on your Instagram this week, which was sex life. So <laughs> tell us um, more about some of these benefits that people can see by implementing fasting and reading your book. Well, I think that that people come to fasting out of curiosity. They want to change body composition. So obviously weight loss is, is a big attraction. I think probably one of the less well-known, and I would say to the lay public, is this concept of autophagy, this waste and recycling process. So your body has the ability in a fasted state to go in and get rid of diseased, disordered mitochondria, organelles, things that don't belong, even potentially precancerous cells. And it does this while you're fasted. It's almost like taking out the garbage. And I think on so many levels, um, when we're looking at biophysical markers, better fasting insulin, glucose, blood pressure, triglycerides, HDL, really looking at the reduction in neurocognitive diseases like Alzheimer's, dementia, looking at things like Parkinson's, and even you know what puts us at less risk for specific types of cancers. I do see a lot of improvement in inflammation as well as gut health, you know, giving people uh, more digestive rest in conjunction with nutritional choices. If you fast long enough, you can actually stimulate some stem cells in the gut. There's a lot of different variations, but the focus of IF45 or intermittent fasting transformation is a 16-8. So really giving you the tools so that you can be successful. But those are the typical things that I think about along with also kind of brain health. So improvement in neurotransmitters, which food and mood go along together really nicely. The bulk of our neurotransmitters are created in the gut microbiome as opposed to the brain. And so I'll see reductions in anxiety and depression, which is a really exciting benefit. I think that's great because a lot of people, like you said, come to fasting for weight loss and they don't realize that they're getting all of these other benefits, whether it's healing their fatty liver or, I mean, I've even heard ones like people were getting a lot of skin tags yes. and they, they're not, they don't have skin tags anymore. They just all, all fell off. Resistance. Yeah. That's, and those, those skin tags are characteristic of insulin resistance. And so I remind people that once you start fixing insulin, there's a downward kind of domino effect, better fertility, less PCOS, um, you know, certainly sometimes people, when they lose weight, they lose adipose tissue. All of a sudden mm-hmm. they're in a position where um, they're able to get pregnant more easily uh, you know, it, to me, they improve menstrual, you know, their menstruation, maybe their cycle was wonky and now it's improved upon. So I think the, the possibilities are really endless. 
And, you know, there's a lot of good research that's going on. It's not just all on, on lab animals, but there's a lot of good research going on, especially with a lot of the metabolic uh, disorders like insulin resistance, PCOS, um, obese menopausal women as one example, as a few examples. Um, there's a lot of lab research that's ongoing, but of course we are not rodents. Uh, so I always say, you know, we can take that with a grain of salt, but I, my hope is that we will get to a point where uh, a woman's menstrual cycle will not be seen as an inconvenience in research studies and that that variable will be one that becomes the norm that has to be factored in for research with humans and not just seen as a impediment to getting good research or good data. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. And I love what you're sharing about that because a lot of people think if they're trying to get pregnant or if they're trying to regulate their period or they're trying to heal their PCOS, that actually fasting would be something you would avoid. And it's interesting to watch how many people in the fasting community have positive results when it comes to those very things and that that's really not what the data is continuing to show. It's it's fascinating. To- yeah. If you really look, if you follow insulin resistance and then you look at fasting, fasting is almost always a strategy that can be profoundly effective for normalizing insulin levels. And I think about people like Ben Bickman, he's an insulin researcher, an incredible resource. If your listeners uh, don't already follow him, he's an incredible resource for insulin and, and, and incredible research that's going on. And so I kind of always take his lead. If he's looking at, you know, fat cells differently or looking at, you know, current research, it always causes me pause and really thinking about the fact that follow the insulin, you know, know your, you know, know what your fasting insulin levels are, know what your uric acid levels are, you know, asking your healthcare provider, these are not weird tests, they're not unusual, maybe your healthcare provider doesn't know how to interpret them and that's okay, uh, but they can still order them and they're covered by insurance, but I would absolutely positively demand to have, I mean, there's a whole slew of labs, but know your fasting insulin. It should not be, you know, I, I like to say between two and five, I start getting a little concerned when it creeps towards seven. I've had women who've insisted they cannot lose weight and I find out their fasting insulin is 15. I'm like, well, there you go. <laughs> your insulin is up. You are not losing fat. You are not losing weight. So, you know, really following uh, the cue of, of metabolic flexibility means you got to look at the labs as well as the lifestyle. Definitely. And I think it's been fascinating to learn more about my insulin. I just, I do the finger prick and do the contour next one. I know a lot of people wear CGMs. That's yeah. fine too. But it's really fascinating for you to get to know your blood glucose levels. It's, I think it's just something that should be another tool in all of our tool belts. I agree. Yeah, no. And I, I actually, that's one of the strategies I talk about in the book is, you know, know your blood sugar. Everyone should have a glucometer. Everyone may not be able to afford um, a continuous glucose monitor. A lot of insurances won't cover them unless you're insulin resistant, which is a crime as far as I'm concerned, but it can be one of the most insightful tools you can use. I mean, I wear mine almost year round. I am able to track what carbohydrates work for me, which ones don't. It's sometimes surprising. Uh, and it allows me to monitor, like as a good example, when I'm underneath lights, which is why it's a little dark in my office, when I'm underneath lights and I'm doing podcasting or doing media, my blood sugar goes up because my cortisol goes up. I'm excited. I'm excited to connect. And so I've noticed this whole week, I've turned my lights off and my blood sugar and my insulin response are actually better. And so I found that really fascinating, but my body perceives it's a bigger stress. Obviously I'm getting to the point in the day where the lights have to go on. Um, and so my last podcast the day, I will turn them on so that I'm not in the dark, but yeah, it's amazing. It's, and it's really interesting to look at the influence of nutrition and sleep and stress management and exercise all on your blood sugar control. Uh, like I said, I would encourage everyone to go out and, uh, you know, ask for those routine labs, ask for, you know, can you get a glucometer? They're pretty inexpensive keto mojos, things like that. that can be very inexpensive. The strips tend to be expensive, but even if you just do that for a month, probably the cost of going out for a nice dinner. It's, it's worth it. Yeah. And when I started learning more and more about my blood sugars, I found that when I stopped eating earlier and I've noticed much improved morning blood sugars, and that was a real simple thing. Oh, instead of keeping my window open till eight or nine, oh, if I close it at four or five, even six, it was mm-hmm. so much so much better. Well, I know we're coming to the end of our time together and I'm so grateful for it. And I would love to hear where people can connect with you. 
Yeah. Yeah. So intermittent fasting transformation, IF45 is on pre-sale up until the 14th of March. So if you buy the book before publication date, which is March 15th, you are able to access all of those pre-sale options that I kind of alluded to earlier. Um, I have a podcast called Everyday Wellness, um, which is a great way to connect with me, but probably the easiest way is on my website, which is www.cynthiatherlow.com. I'm very active on Instagram. I'm a little snarky on Twitter. Um, I'm also on Facebook. And one of the nice things is that, you know, through all of those channels, you can really get a sense for what I'm about, who I serve. Um, But I do believe this book is like the consummate intermittent fasting book for women. I hope that it'll help change lives and people feel like they have a little part of me right with them while they're reading it. Well, thank you for your time today. And my last question before I let you go is, I'd love for you to give a little pep talk to anyone out there who has either started fasting, has been fasting for a long time, no matter where they are on their fasting journey, who might be struggling, what would you say to them? Well, you know, I think it's okay to take a break. Um, That's probably not what you're expecting me to say, but there is a time and a place for fasting. And sometimes it's too much of a stressor on our bodies. It may not be the right time to be fasting. So if you feel like you're really struggling, maybe you need to take a break for a week or two and take a pause really investigate why you want to fast for those types of people or for the type of people that are new to fasting and feeling it's really overwhelmed. I always say slow and steady wins. So it may be that you start with just stopping snacking and then you move on to restructuring your macros before you even think about fasting, because there are specific things that I've come to find to make fasting much more successful. If we follow a system that will make it much more attainable. And listen, there are some people out there, it will take them six to eight weeks to get to a point where they can fast for a long period of time. And that is okay. I find the people that are the most carbohydrate dependent, the most metabolically inflexible, it will take longer. One of my best friends from high school now, unfortunately has diabetes and uh, I've been coaching her through, you know, kind of moving more towards metabolic flexibility. And she called me one day out of utter frustration because I said, the best thing you can do for insulin resistance after a meal is go walk. (laughs) So she was saying the walking is easy the lifting is not. And I said, do it anyway. So sometimes we have to, it may take a bit of time for something new to become a habit, but we set the intention and we put it in motion and every step forward is a win. It doesn't have to be this all or nothing phenomenon I am very much of someone that will say, it may take you eight weeks to get to 16 hours fasted. That is okay. I don't care if your significant other, your mother, your brother, your sister, they do it effortlessly on day one. Don't focus on anyone else. Stay in your lane. Focus on what you need to do for you and just to acknowledge the beauty that is your own bioindividuality. Oh, I love that. I think that is beautiful, bold advice. Cynthia, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. So good to connect with you. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to write a review and push that subscribe button. I also hope you will come hang out with me on Instagram, Facebook, and my new website, betlucas.com. And remember, friends, be you boldly. The world needs you. You.